You're listening to the Deep Purple Podcast, a fan podcast about one of the most legendary bands of all time, Deep Purple. We take a look at the music, history, and people behind the band Deep Purple and beyond. Welcome to the Deep Purple Podcast, the first and only podcast devoted to one of the greatest bands in rock history, Deep Purple. Today's episode is episode 18, Stormbringer. And coming to you from the humid, sticky suburbs of Chicago, I'm your host, Nathan Beaudry. And coming to you from the littlest state in the nation, I'm your co-host, Johnny Courtjester Matola. <laughs> Courtjester. Remember we found that oh. picture of Martin Birch? He was like dressed in like knight's armor. It was like one of the first, like, I was like, oh, I got a good, a good picture of Martin Birch. Like the first thing that comes on Google image search is like him, <laughs> like, like classic, like comedy movie. The guy's hiding in the suit of armor and like the hallway and hoping that the yeah. people don't see him. <laughs> I don't know what was going on there. Um, who does? So if you want to keep up to date on the show, please make sure to subscribe in Apple podcasts or whatever podcatcher you use. You can subscribe on YouTube. Um, all of our information is at deeppurplepodcast.com or on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff. And two ways you can really help support the show. Become a patron on Patreon. Donate as little as $1 a month to help support the show. And another great way to support the show is to get the word out there and give us some five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts. We're waiting for more ratings, more feedback. We really appreciate it. Speaking of feedback, you did get some feedback actually about our last episode um, well, our last episode as of recording this, which was about Coverdale and Hughes, and feedback was kind of like, hey, really enjoyed the episode, but you guys spent a lot of time talking about pictures I can't see. <laughs> no, so, no. Um, which, you know, we've kind of talked about before, too. So we try to be as descriptive as possible, um, but maybe that's something we should be a little aware of and not talk so much about it. But one thing, I, we couldn't not talk about that picture of Coverdale. It's just... It's too much. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was too good. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. We the the descriptions uh, did not do it justice. Yeah, so. we can't just let that go. So yeah, if you know, we'll. I always try to put pictures in the show notes, especially lately. I've been trying to get better about that. So if you need a reference, check the show notes. Probably not going to help you if you're driving. Um, <laughs> and you can watch the YouTube channel where we do actually show the stuff although the audio quality is not quite as good so we'll try to be as descriptive as possible about our stuff i I feel it is really important to um highlight the album art and talk about the history of the album art and i think that might be a little bit easier for people because for the most part if you're listening to this you probably are at least a little familiar with the album art and you can visualize it um but yeah we'll try to be a little more mindful and a little more descriptive when we're, we're doing anything visual that is my that's the deep purple podcast promise. So, thanks to our patrons, Clay Wambacher, Steve Seaborg coming in at the $5 tier and then Peter Gardo at the $3 tier. Looking for new patrons, always happy to do it and you know, we've got some kind of goals for what happens when we hit 10 patrons or 20 patrons and stuff like that, but haven't gotten there yet. So, if you're interested in that, if there's anything different you'd like to see with the show when we hit those, we talk about um, automating some of our social media feeds to, to bring more information to followers and some other stuff is, um, 
you know, talk about maybe looking into doing a live stream for the recording, although I don't even know what's involved with that. But, um, you know, whatever you think, maybe we could do bonus episodes like one every month or something if we get if we get enough people. But whatever you think is going to be a good reward, you know, let us know. Give us some feedback. All right. We ready to get into Stormbringer it was very early in the episode, but we're ready to dive into it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm totally ready. All right. So um, in the early 2000s, uh, there were two studio guys at Abbey Road Studios, and they took down a box of tapes that didn't have any labels on them. And they put them into the machine, and they start listening to it, and they're thinking, what is this? We don't know. We don't recognize this band. We don't know what it is. Um, They thought it was Earth, Wind, and Fire, but (laughs) what they ended up finding was the Masters for Stormbringer. (laughs) <laughs> and they were listening to the song You Can't Do It Right. So uh, I thought that was a really interesting story to start off where this album is headed, that it was mistaken for as an Earth, Wind, and Fire album. Um, yeah, and that was actually the song that I was wondering if that was they were listening to. And when you said it, I was like, wow, I was right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's not surprising. You know, like if, if you hear it without knowing about it, you 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 could definitely see that happening. Um, so in June and July of 1974, they set aside some free time for the band. We've seen this before. Well, usually they're setting aside recording time for the band and they're just so burned out that they turn it into free time. So maybe management was starting to wise up and give them a little time to actually wind down. Uh, usually the only time they had any wind down was when they weren't supposed to be winding down or when somebody contracted hepatitis or whatever it was. It's always like some terrible situation like, oh, Roger, was it Roger Glover or Roger Glover's appendix burst and like people like the other guys in the band are like oh well that's too bad but it's nice to have some time off Um, (laughs) so it's uh it's good to see them actually getting some scheduled time off um uh Coverdale says theoretically we had a couple of weeks of peace and quiet to write but inevitably it turned into a couple of weeks of revelry and we found most of the writing was actually done while we were in the studio um, so once again, they, they don't necessarily use the time they're supposed to be writing for actual writing. Um, John Lord used this time to work on two projects. He was working on his first of the big big bands album with uh, Tony Ashton, which is a great album. Uh, we'd love to get into that one day. And he was also working on his Windows album. So John Lord, man, he just, it's like since, ever since Concerto, he just keeps going and going. He never stops. Um, Richie Blackmore did some session work for Adam Faith's album Survive. Um, I Survive, but it, he only appears in like the first thirty seconds of the first song. I've never heard it. Are you familiar with Adam Faith? No, no, me either. So we'll have to check that out someday. Um, they <laughs> apparently Blackmore. Uh, they organized some football games. You see a lot of like photos of them, like all decked out and like playing football and uh, shooting air rifles and. Blackmore arranged some seances again. We we heard about that in what which album was it where he was doing the seances? Was it so like Fireball or something? Yeah, I think it was Fireball. So yeah, they get to this house. They're like, all right, we get this house set up to record, and Blackmore's like, great, let's summon some spirits or whatever. Um, <laughs> um, so in an interview, John Lord told reporters that they had written fourteen or fifteen songs for this album. So I don't know what these other songs are, but we, we're only getting nine on this album today. 
Um, Roger Glover at this time was producing Elf and Nazareth and continuing to work with uh, Purple Records and still kind of not too far away from the band. And then he also began work on the Butterfly Ball and both Hughes and Coverdale would be on that recording and also on the live concert. Um, Gillen was working on Cher Kazoo or Shea Kazoo as it was called before um, at his new uh, recording studio. Um, and then the band, uh, Deep Purple proper, goes back to Clearwell for two weeks of rehearsals ahead of recording Stormbringer. Um, again, like with Fireball and Who Do We Think We Are, they kind of shirked some of the, the responsibilities during that time. Um, so for the first time since Fireball, they also decided to go to the studio, uh, to, to go into a studio to record rather than using the mobile unit. So they go to Musicland Studios at the base of the Arabella Hotel in Munich. Um, where they will spend all their time for this album. Lord uh, also used this studio to mix the Windows album. And Martin Birch said at the time that this was one of the best equipped and technically advanced studios that he'd ever seen. So he was really happy to be in the surrounding because I'm sure as as advanced as the mobile unit was, I'm sure it was a a little bit um, maybe not as comfortable as being in a proper studio. Um, So... This becomes a really popular studio. White Snake would record here. Rainbow would record here. Pace Ashton Lord. So all the kind of offshoots after the band breaks up would, would kind of stick around the studio. Um, and then eventually, I guess, they constructed a subway that was right near the studio, and it was in the basement of the hotel, and it just kind of it was created all this rumbling and just kind of they had to shut the studio down because of the sound, which is too bad. Um, Coverdale says, We went to Munich with very little worked out, we had been working so hard on promoting the new band and convincing people of its worth that we never had any time to write. And in in The Road of... So I've got two books that I'm reading simultaneously, The Road of Golden Dust by Jerry Bloom and then Smoke on the Water, uh, another book about uh, Deep Purple. And they kind of don't tell the same story. In, in Smoke on the Water... They tell of a little bit more frustration between Coverdale and Hughes, but in everything else I read, it kind of seems like they were really close and good friends and that there wasn't a lot of animosity, but uh, Smoke mm-hmm. on the Water paints a different picture. So I'm not sure where that comes from or if it's from specific interviews, but um, I, I've never really heard much about the band having that dynamic. I always thought it was pretty amicable between them other than his later kind of drug problems. Um, Lord got to work on Windows. Blackmore is beginning a solo project at this time. And uh, they also had this concept, I guess. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, about splitting up the new album uh, into doing a double album. And then each member would kind of have a, a side of the album, which doesn't equal five. So I don't know how that would work. But um, mm-hmm. kind of talking about like Blackmore would have a side of the album and Lord would have a side of the album where they could feature all of their stuff. Um, it didn't end up happening, but it's kind of cool. It's kind of like almost like a like a kiss sort of idea, right? Mm-hmm. Solo albums. Yeah, although they were kind of talking about sharing it all, but the Kiss albums were branded as Kiss, though, right? Yeah. Even though it was only the the one member on each album. <clears throat> right. I mean, for all intents and purposes, like those those albums were like they all went their separate ways and used their own bands and musicians and wrote their own songs. Like none of them. Like, it wasn't a Kiss album as in, like, you know, none of them played on the other ones, but they were released as four four solo albums, like Kiss albums. So it's, like, Kiss, Ace Frehley, Kiss Peter Chris. Um, <clears throat> so 
but yeah, so it's uh, but I mean, there's even been like talks about. I know there's been some of those like what ifs on other podcasts that I listen to, like what two or three songs from each album would you pick at that time to make like your ideal uh, kiss album and what would it be type of thing. So yeah, like but it never album. seems to, yeah, but it would never seem to work out because it's like, I feel like once you divide everybody up, like all of their songs were so different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it would that, be disjointed. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, there was, you know, there's some interesting theories about it, but I feel like if deep purple tried to do the same thing, I feel like it would, it probably wouldn't have worked as well as, all of them just writing together as a band, you know? Yeah. I mean, you could, you could kind of toy around with that same idea by taking say a, a pace ash or like a, or even something off of windows with John Lord and then something off of play me out, something off of the first David Coverdale solo album and first something off the first rainbow album and stitching that together. And it would, it would kind of be a mess. Yeah. Um, people are always trying to rewrite history. Like they do the same thing with the Beatles where it's like um, the white album. People are like, oh, it shouldn't have had this song or it should have had that song or it should have been a single album, should have been this and that. And they, they kind of go back and forth between um, talking about it and everyone has this different idea of what it should be. And it's, it's interesting because Paul McCartney, the one who's kind of usually very upbeat and positive is just like, why does everyone talk about this? It's the bloody Beatles white album. It is what it is. It's great. Leave it alone. You know, which is, which is kind of like a good philosophy, I think, because, you know, it's like, yeah, if I had to get rid of, I don't know, revolution number nine or something, I wouldn't cry about it. But um, at the end of the day, the albums stand on their own and are really good. I always liked the kiss concept of doing these multiple albums and, but still branding it as kiss. I thought it was a really cool concept that they did. I'm not super familiar with those albums, but I really mm-hmm. like the idea of it. And it, it, it would have been cool to see what would have happened with deep purple if they'd tried a similar thing. Yeah. That's, it's pretty wild. I don't know. I can't picture it. No, it would have um, been, but I think it would have been cool if, or, or, or maybe they did like uh you know, it's like, Hey, Glenn Hughes is going to write all the songs in this album, but deep purple is going to play it together. And Hey, John Lord's going to write all the songs and we're going to play it, whatever it was. And tried to do it that way, you know, and say like, hey, I'm going to support your songs. You support mine. Yeah. Um, but I think that with the Kiss thing, I'm sure it must have also uh, functioned as ha- being a nice breather for everybody to get a little break from each other and all that. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that was part of it. Yeah, that was um, in uh, written in history that that's one of the reasons that they wanted to do it was, um, I think it was a concept too, like an over the top concept of, mm-hmm. um, let's, let's like release all four albums, like one from each member of the band. They like commissioned portraits to be painted of all of them. They'd ship, they shipped platinum on the same day, you know, it was this big marketing thing. And it looked um, great. They all looked cohesive. They, every album cover was yeah. the same style and I'm sure designed by the same person and it looked yeah. great. But, you know, there were the reason they one of the reasons they did it was there were there were problems in the band because, um, you know, uh, Ace and Peter wanted to leave. And, um, you know, uh, just everybody was getting pretty much tired of each other. And so they went off and they did their own thing. And you got like four really different albums. So the only thing really cohesive about it was the album covers. But like, I remember just being shocked when I listened to them the first time, because like, like Paul's and Aces for me were like most kiss like, but then Jeans was just like this eclectic mix of like 
just weird music and I was just like, okay, I'm all set with that. And then Peter Chris's was like this Motown R and B. I I liked thing. that. Peter Chris is the one I think I, I I've heard bits and pieces of all of them, but I think I liked Peter Chris's the most. I mean, everybody always rags on his and says that it's terrible, but I mean, it's like it's because I think it's because it's the least like kiss like. But I mean, I think it's like a nice listen, you know, to just this kind of like smooth R and like late seventies R and B, whatever. But I'd say like you know. Paul Paul's is probably my favorite because it's the most kiss like, even though he took a few chances and did some different type of songs and music and everything. But the whole point was, is that they, after that, they're like, okay, like we, we spent like a year apart and then they got back together and it didn't really, it didn't really fix anything. Um, like the, the band kind of went in a direction that longtime fans were confused by. And, um, you know, it just got more, poppy and experimental until you know they it, it, things kind of fell apart with the original guys well it's um, it's pretty it's genius though i mean if 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 i mean it's it sounds like really good a really good management tactic to because they got a kiss album so it's five total albums four. Oh, what was what was platinum then no they they all shipped platinum oh they all ship oh i'm sorry i'm sorry um so so four out like if Deep Purple had tried something similar, and even if they'd just done you know three out or whatever it was, you know at the very least you're cranking out, you're giving everyone a break, getting them to work out some of the stuff, the frustrations that they were having, not getting this hard in the band. You get all these album sales, give people a break. I mean, it's kind of a huge win. And and in the end, if it doesn't work out, well, hey, we cranked out four or five more albums. You know, like yeah, how can you lose? You know, but. I feel like the way the type of band that Deep Purple was, though, is, is they, you know, obviously weren't a visual band uh, like Kiss was. And I think that the the idea behind uh, the 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 Kiss solo albums was more was like the the mystique behind each guy. And, you know, they 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 had also their their uh, their manager was uh, the guys that managed them were like much more into this over the top like um, type of thing, like uh, marketing and um, uh, marketing the band visually and like having these like really just like bombastic ideas, whereas it's like, and and the personas of the guys too. It's just like the guys in Deep Purple really didn't have that and their management wasn't really thinking that way about them. They were just kind of marketing them as like a regular band. Like they weren't marketing like superheroes and mystiques and stuff like that. And I mm-hmm. think that's why it kind of worked for them, even though like, it, like, yeah, Deep Purple totally could have done it. And, you know, they probably would have like, probably would have churned out like like five like awesome albums and i mean as we so like you know what i mean the the history of deep purple shows that we didn't even need them to have solo albums because i mean based on the whole reason we did the podcast is like how many different offshoots of deep purple were there like right we could we could just go on and on and i guess uh, yeah they they did do it it's just not branded under you know like john lord yeah. simultaneously doing windows and first of the big bands and Glenn Hughes later does play me out and cover it. So everyone kind of did work on it in their own way. It just wasn't, um, you know, they didn't, but it was kind of in the process of breaking up the band as well. But I think the, the, the mystique of, uh, of, of deep purple, I guess you could say is, is that like, we're really considering like all of these, like not deep purple albums, but like the, the Gillen albums and uh, John Lord's projects and everything. And like, they're all, in the deep purple family they're all under the deep purple like blanket 
Mm-hmm. So it's like so if you if you look at it that way, even though it wasn't branded that way, it's like they have a way more massive catalog than than really anybody because it's like yeah, proper Deep Purple only had or has X amount of albums, but you know yeah, but since, the whole uh, collective is sitting over three hundred albums, so it's a yeah, lot. Yeah, I mean of stuff. For, for crying out loud, look at look at some of the the projects and stuff of like um, even like. 80s white snake was like wasn't it like like three like four like almost almost all of like mark like mark three where like it was like yeah yeah i mean it was, it was basically it was basically deep purple yeah it was it was basically deep purple yeah i mean yeah you you've got um yeah and then you it's it's kind of like pace ashton lord with deep with uh <laughs> with um coverdale and you know because you've got bernie bernie marsden Pace and and Lord coming over from Pace Ashton Lord, or like Green Bullfrog. Yep. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like yeah. There's there's so yeah. Much. There was yeah. There were some of these albums I remember listening to being like, this is basically Deep Purple with like a different <laughs> guitar player or a different bass player. Or well, something, yeah. And Green know? Bullfrog, they had all like the pseudonyms. Like I forgot what yeah. I forgot what the names were, but like the Man in Black and the this and that because everyone was under contract and weren't weren't they weren't even supposed to be doing that album. <laughs> so it's like yeah. people kind of knew it was Richie Blackmore, but they didn't really. It wasn't really advertised as such. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. But anyway, yeah, back wow. to long long tangent. Long tangent. Sorry about that. But it was mostly about somewhat about Kiss, but <laughs> mostly about Deep Purple. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, so the, yeah, they toyed with that concept. It didn't really go anywhere. Richie didn't bring a lot to the sessions. His marriage was in the process of breaking up. Um, he was kind of going through some personal problems, which he acknowledges. Uh, and he he didn't come with a lot of stuff. Hughes compliments Blackmore's playing on all of his material. Says it was brilliant. You know, and we talked about that before. He's like, he's a damn funky bass, damn it's funky guitarist, damn funky. <laughs> but which Richie would hate probably hates hearing that because he hates yeah. funk and everything funk. Um, the band didn't realize at this point that he was thinking about leaving. Um, Coverdale and Hughes g- got more interested in this soul and funk direction. Blackmore was beginning to get interested in these classical influences. And Blackmore says, in 19, he says, 1974, that's when it hit me. That's what set my mind thinking. But I used to just, I used to love just listening to it. That was enough. Play rock and roll and listen to Renaissance music. So he was <laughs> dabbling in the, in the his gateway Renaissance drugs. Oh boy! Uh, for the first time since 1969, there were songs where Blackmore didn't get a writing credit. So he's always gotten a writing credit on every, every, uh, everything. I think since that Lord song on maybe the first album or something. He, since 1969, he's been on every single song. But now there's starts to songs pop up that he doesn't have any writing credits on, which kind of shows his lack of interest in where the band's headed. Um, uh, so you know musical differences are really what kind of drove it apart even though sometimes people say it's musical differences when it's other things Um, so everyone in the band is jockeying to get their own songs on the album and people are starting to you know also it's just the the cash cow that Deep Purple was at this point too it's like if you get a writing credit on a song you're getting a you know a, a bigger cut of the a bigger piece of the pie so everyone wanted to get their songs to be on the album and the Mark II arrangement um was different than the Mark One and Mark Three, and that they decided from the get-go they were all going to be credited on every song, and that does kind of level the playing field and make make it less urgent and less of a political thing, and people just do what they do. But you know, money kind of took over at this point. 
Um, Blackmore worked with Coverdale trying to turn his lyrics away from normal rock and roll roll things. You know, Coverdale is about, you know, being a vagabond and groupies and being on the road and rock and roll, just kind of like standard fare. And Blackmore wants to talk about dragons and fantasy and warlocks and every other thing. Um, uh, So in the book Smoke on the Water by Dave Thompson, he says, um, nobody paid good money to listen. (laughs) Um, Blackmore says this, I think. Um, (laughs) Nobody paid good money to listen to plumbers discuss plumbing or bank clerks talk about banking. Beyond whatever vicarious thrills might be derived from another Life on the Road song, why should rock and rollers be any different? So I'm sorry, that was actually just a quote from Dave Thompson from the book. So, you know, saying you don't want to hear plumbers talk about plumbing. You don't want to hear rock and roll stars talk about rock and roll. Um, I think I'd argue that you'd probably be more interested in hearing rock and roll guys talk about rock and roll than plumbers talk about plumbing. But um, yeah. uh, I, I see what he's saying. You know, it's it does get a little redundant, I think, the the lyric thing about you know, oh, I'm on the road. It's real tough. And, you know, it's just like, oh boy, it's it's well well worn territory by especially bands in the '70s. Yeah. Did any band in the '70s not have a song about being on the road? Um, oh boy, It'd be I don't know. Challenging to think of. Um, so uh, and finally, before we get into the album art, Birch says, um. Martin Birch says, the funk thing started to creep in. It wasn't going the way Richie wanted, and by the time it came to the mixing stage, he'd lost interest completely. So, not a great way to kick off the <laughs> kick off the old album. Jeez. Yeah. So, that's the lead up to the album, and then we get into the album art, which I'll pull up here. And apology, but I'm sure everyone listening has seen this cover. There's the cover to Stormbringer. So this is an interesting kind of background behind this cover. So you've got the first album since the Book of Taliesin that doesn't have the band on it. You've got this big twister kind of coming down, touching down in the in the what looks like the grasslands with a with a barn in the foreground. And then you've got this magical Pegasus flying by with rainbows, lightning shooting out of the back of it. It's really, um, really kind of interesting art. And for the first time, we see that what ends up being the Deep Purple logo. That 70s font, Deep Purple in red up at the top and below it, Stormbringer. Yeah, finally, they got a, they got a logo. It just took them several years. Yes. <laughs> so I think it's a cool cover. I like it. It's great. The I think I mean honestly, it might be one of my favorite covers of theirs because it's just just very it's just very interesting and it and it it just really plays into the the imagery that's that's brought up in the song Stormbringer. Mm-hmm. Um, so the album was not always going to be called Stormbringer. It was originally going to be called um, it was going to be called Silence. And I can never get this thing to work here. That's the original album cover. Uh, okay. <laughs> so I'm glad, this, glad they went with the other one. This is like a kind of, I don't know, how would you describe this woman? Like a Rocky Horror sort of looking. It looks like a drag queen. Yeah, kind of looks like a drag queen, but it's oh, it, it's a woman. Yeah, with yeah kind, kind of, of a Rocky Horror like type of 
curly, f- curly, frizzy blonde hair. Um, extremely, I don't know enough about makeup to say say what that is, but like extremely over exaggerated um, eyelash makeup. Putting her finger up to her lips um, and a little little beauty mark on the left. She's got a black strap dress on, and one of the straps is hanging off the shoulder. And the 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 name of the album was going to be called Silence. And this was the yeah. album cover. Yeah, I don't know if that would have worked for me. <laughs> well, and it's very it doesn't really fit in with Deep Purple. Like it's it's it looks yeah. I mean, it looks like an album cover you would have seen in the 70s, no question. Um, just not by the band Deep Purple. Um, yeah, no, not at all. Uh, they toyed with one other album cover, which is a picture we've already talked about and discussed on the show, which is this the aftermath of the riot on the show that they played in, I believe it was in Japan. Where mm-hmm. Richie refused to do an encore because he said the audience sucked and everyone rioted and threw chairs around and beat up Ian Gillen. <laughs> Terrible. Um, and they were going to go with that, and it's it, that's another interesting one because this was this was like two albums previous to this one. Why they would have chosen this one at this point? But mm-hmm. the one they went with was obviously better. And these are just mock-ups. Who knows what they would have done with these concepts? But the yeah. um, uh, Blackmore told. A reporter. Um, oh, as the original title "Silence" was based on the sign in the control room at Musicland Studio. It just said "Silence" because people mm-hmm. were recording. Um, Blackmore told a reporter at the studio that he wanted a girl on the cover because, in quote, "We're fed up having to look at our own faces." He suggested that he suggested that the woman would be holding a phallic symbol, but as we see in that original picture, she's not. Thankfully, and. This is these these are both both pictures are from the Deep Purple Appreciation Society archive from their website, which is a huge, great resource for Deep Purple stuff. I'll have the link in the show notes. Um, but the picture the the picture they ended up using to go with Stormbringer, oops, is this picture right here. Mm. Which, um, and this is a picture. There's a very interesting history behind it. Um, if I can find my notes here, so. It was a picture of an actual tornado. It was taken on July 8th, 1927 near Jasper, um, Mississippi. I think I wrote Minnesota in my notes, but it's got to be Mississippi. Um, The photo was taken by Lucille Handberg. It was edited for the album's cover. Um, And then there's this little uh, blurb about... um, Oh, no, maybe it was Minnesota. It says... Um, how brave Lucille chased down the tornado for this photo. The most remarkable picture of a twister ever taken snapped by a South Dakota schoolgirl who risked her life pursuing the monster to win the state fair prize for the best photograph. And she certainly did win it. So this is kind of a revolutionary photo at the time. One of the first photos of a tornado forming and hitting the ground. And it, wow. it became a really famous photo. And, has actually been used on this kind of blew my mind because I never knew this, but it's also used on another extremely famous album, which is Miles Davis Bitches Brew. Huh. So, which I used to listen to this quite a bit. I used to really like this album. Um, and there, you can see right there that's the same picture of the tornado going into the the, the person's hair it's kind of like growing out of the out of the hair and, and creating this storm over over the ocean and uh if you're familiar with this album you, you you'll know and seeing that it's actually the same sort of thing as 
uh, as Stormbringer is kind of interesting. And then they used it on another album that I'm not familiar with at all um, called Susie and the Banshees. Hmm. And the album Tinderbox, this came out in the 80s, 86, I think. Uh, it's the same photo. And then for Deep Purple, as we get back to them, you can see they just kind of flipped the photo and you're looking at the inverse. So very interesting stuff. And again, it's a painting based on that photo, but it's very faithful painting. Yeah. So it's a little history behind the art. I, f- I find the art really weird because they they did a, like a lot of weird things. You know, we talked before, like these album covers, like Shades of Deep Purple, they like put those for the American version. They put like the album cover small in the corner and then they put all these other squares below it. Yeah. And um, they just do like weird little things and I never really quite understand why, but they edited this photo for the American for the American version. And this is the American version. So they basically just like lightened it up. Or do I yeah, have it? Looks, it looks washed out. Yeah, it's more washed out. Or you know what? I might have, I might even have it flipped, to be honest with you. I can't remember which one is which. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, they, they make it a little bit more washed out, a little less, uh, a little less colorful. They, they, just basically bring the Stormbringer really small. They make that logo a little larger, and the Deep Purple logo actually does look better. And scrolling through in the Deep Purple Appreciation Society, there's a few other ones. Like in Mozambique, they they released it. It lo- looks like a sketch, and it's all orangey. It's like it's like it looks like an orange and black monochrome. Wow. And I just find it really fascinating that they felt the need to make all these changes in these different countries for what purpose i have no idea and uh finally in south korea the album is called soldier of fortune same album cover but it's called soldier of fortune and okay. it doesn't include the song stormbringer that's so weird like I, and again why the hell do they make these decisions why do they do that why do they leave out you know, this out, the American version not having demon's eye and all this sort of stuff. Like, why do they do? Who are the who are the record geniuses who come up with this? You know, like, what? Why are they doing this? Yeah. Um. But anyway, little history behind the album cover. Back cover is the complete lyrics. Again, not going with a gatefold, but they got the complete lyrics, which is pretty cool. I, I feel like in the Ian Gillen days, the lyrics would not have filled up the back, you know, much shorter lyrics sheets. Yeah. Yeah. And then we talked, (laughs) we talked in a past episode about like, I think it was, who do we think we are with those, those weird ads they ran, you know, Mm -hmm. and you were like, what the hell were they thinking? You know, like, like this, like weird sort of offbeat British humor sort of thing. This one's a weird one too. They ran, they decided to run this ad to promote the album. It's, it says, every young lad needs a sense of purple. And it's a black and white sketch of this little, I don't know, 12-year-old boy with what looks like khakis on and a polo shirt, standing on a, on a road with a house in the background, looking with a big smile, and it says, Stormbringer underneath it. Like, what the hell? Like, I don't understand <laughs> the philosophy behind this advertisement. 
And then it says, surprising new music from Deep Purple for lads, lasses, and friends of the family on Purple Records and tapes distributed by Warner Brothers. That just makes no sense to me. <laughs> it doesn't. It's not like, yeah, I want to check out the new rock and Deep Purple album. It, it looks like a, I have, I don't even know what to call this, but it check. It looks like a hoot. <laughs> it looks like a what? It looks like a hoot. A hoot. So yeah, definitely check this picture out in the show notes if you haven't seen it before because it's very weird. And then there's kind of a more traditional advertisement here, which is just repurposing the Stormbringer album cover with the big deep purple logo, which makes a heck of a lot more sense. Yeah. So that's a little background behind the album art there. Lot to lot to take in on that. So um, there's a... Um, there's a book called Stormbringer by Michael Moorcock, which is about a magical sword. It came out in the 60s and 70s. David Coverdale claims he never heard of the book, never read the book, uh, but people, you know, brought this up and he was just, he says he's never heard of it. He says the name came from mythology, but no one can seem to find what mythology he's talking about other than this book. So it might have been, I don't, I don't think he intentionally stole it, but um, it's, it's weird that he came up with this idea for the song title um in an interview with Mor- uh, Morcock he says I saw I, I saw in an interview a while back with David Coverdale there's an interview in NME that goes why did you take Mike Morcock's title for your album and he says well I didn't it's just a general name it's a mythological name and the interview says and the interviewer says no it isn't <laughs> it's going back and forth for a while and then he says well I think it is um and then Dave Thompson says in fact, it isn't, but Moorcock shrugged. You get used to that after a while. I'm not hugely sensitive about all that. So seems like they were very, back then, very free about things getting stolen or whatever. they just like, yeah, whatever. You know? Yeah, apparently. You stole our riff, you stole our song, it doesn't matter. Not very litigious. Probably better off that way. The cover design was uh, by Joe, uh, uh, Joe Garnett. Um, he he was given just a copy of that black and white photo and he he did an oil painting on it and added the horse and the rainbow lightning and he says um that that that's what he did for it he was given the the commission by a guy named John Cabalco uh, who had done a lot of album covers and Joe Gar- Garnett also did a lot of album covers for Captain Beyond Cheech and Chong Jethro Tull and Ario Speedwagon and he said in an interview that um, he, he said, I, I only did about 35 album covers over a span of 24 years. I rarely got to meet any of the recording artists, including the members of Deep Purple. We're just kind of like, oh, man, hmm. don't meet the guy. Um, um, yeah, and that, that's it. They didn't do a gatefold on this one for whatever reason. And uh, this is the first time they used this logo. The only other time they use it is in Made in Europe, and then they kind of abandoned it until the 90s and started bringing it back. Wow. So It originated in the Mark IV lineup, a Mark III lineup. All right. The stage is set. We're ready to dive into some of the tracks on Stormbringer? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was very sheepish. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, let me try. Let me try again. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's. I'll I'll edit that in. <laughs> it's, 
<laughs> make it sound like a little more enthusiastic. <laughs> yes. Now you. Oh, oh yes, <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> oh, oh my. <laughs> uh, okay, so here we go. Munich, August 1974. Open it up with the title track, Stormbringer. Is it on? Um, I can't. I can't hear anything. Oops! There you go. <laughs> there we go. Missed the intro, but the heavy, heavy synth intro there. Sounds like Richie's into this song. Well, yeah, the thing about this is like the stories you hear is, is that Richie was just like totally disinterested, but it's like you don't hear it in his playing. Not in this song for sure. Well, I, I mean, I don't think I hear it anywhere on the album. I mean, you you compare this to like, who do we think we are? And it's like. If he was the same level of board on both of them, I can't tell at all on this album. Coverdale insisted that Stormbringer was a heavy metal song. He says, I know because I wrote the bloody thing. <laughs> Classic Coverdale. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of Coverdale, you can you can already tell on this album or on this song that he is he's a lot more confident as in his singing. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, of course, everything on Burn was great, but I mean, you could you could tell probably from us talking about it that he was a novice, that he was a little shaky. But he definitely sounds like he's found his footing on this album, which is the best thing about it. I think it's a great album opener. I don't think it's quite the level of Burn, but... No, I do like the synth part, and I'm, I'm sure it turned off a lot of people at the time. It's very mellow. Like this whole album, like especially this song, it just it sets the tone. It's very mellow, very laid back rock. Well, the sequence, powerful. the sequence of this album means you go into kind of a. You know, similar to Burn, you go into a, a much more downbeat tempo song after this. But it's interesting because it's like this whole ride the rainbow thing is very like debated that that's where Richie Blackmore took the name rainbow from. lyrically it's a very strong song too yeah I've read interviews with Coverdale where he's not super high on this song I 
shorter to the point, more kind of straightforward song than Burn was. Oh, yeah. I think it's good. I mean, I I never I never didn't think it was, you know. No, it's 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 always been uh, it's always been a favorite of mine. Um, I do want to just kind of highlight one thing though at the beginning of the song here. So we hear the synth intro, and then this part where you hear Coverdale kind of making this noise. Listen. So that is. Do we know what he says? We do. It's it's ba- it's backwards. So I did a little. Um, I spent way more time on this than I probably should have. <laughs> but I flipped. I flipped the audio. Huh. And did a ton of EQ on it to try to isolate the vocals. It's still very hard to make out. Wow. But I'm gonna I'm gonna play for you my little audio cleanup here and see if you can see if you can tell what he's saying. I'm going to just let me stop it right here. I'm going to share the screen with you and then play it for you and see if you can hear what he's saying. I'm going to turn up the volume actually as well. Listen to the backwards vocals here. Can you make that out? Did he say Stormbringer? At the end he did, yeah. I I couldn't hear anything else though. Wanna hear it one more time? Alright. <laughs> I don't know if it's gonna make a difference, but Alright, let's see. All I could make out was Stormbringer. Well, yeah, I was, I was afraid that uh, even all the audio cleanup in the world wouldn't be able to affect that. But he says, and we're going to have to lose our clean rating on this one. Oh, boy. <laughs> it's, it's, from a, it's, from the famous, uh, it's the from the famous scene in The Exorcist. Yeah. So he says, cocksucker, motherfucker, stormbringer. <laughs> what? <laughs> why? I don't know. I really don't know why. I guess they had kind of they had seen that movie um, recently, and Glenn Hughes would have been dating Linda Blair somewhat around this time. So maybe, um, <laughs> maybe it was in homage to Glenn Hughes's uh, girlfriend or whatever. Okay. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna have to put the explicit tag on this one. Oh boy, um, could have probably gotten away with it if it was just Coverdale saying it. So yeah, it's a little. <laughs> Insight into the beginning, kind of garbled lyrics by David Coverdale. Weird thing to do. Um, all right, next up, we go into. Well, oh, wait a minute. Before, oh, oh well, before I'm sorry. Next we forgot, up, to, we, forgot oh, we forgot to rate it. My goodness gracious. What is the matter with you? I apologize. Yeah, I'm like all out of practice. All right, so. Um, 
I mean, I think it's a solid song. I think it, I think it deserves four four hats for me. I give it four point five pilgrim hats. Oh, I, I do really like it. I like the way it introduces like a new element to the band with that synth intro. Yeah, solid solo by Blackmore. Very straightforward. I think it's a. It always to me felt very much in the same vein as Burn of just like starting it off the album with a good punch. Yeah. But it's just not quite the masterpiece that Burn is. Well, don't forget too, great vocals by Coverdale. Yes. Like I mean, and, this and is great like, lyrics too. Yeah, classic Coverdale like uh, vocals in terms of like his performance. What's the lyric he says? I always thought it was really cool. Um, uh, so rainbow shaker on a stallion twister, black. Um, it's really hard to read this on the eye of the sky I mean it's like oh man it's a great yeah. it's got great some lyrics good, yeah good imagery in there very good imagery very very vivid Woody, the, the picture that he's painting mm-hmm. of this weird fantasy world that <laughs> Richie Blackmore wants to live in <laughs> um, okay so next up huge shift from you know the shift from burn into uh what's the second track might just take your life yeah that's a pretty big shift but the shift from stormbringer into the next song here is even more stark and the next song up is uh love don't mean a thing i always love that guitar tone on the beginning here Very soulful lyrics delivered by Coverdale here. Yeah, the more I, I mean, I like this song, but the more I hear it, it's just such a weird deep purple song it really is it's um interesting story behind it glenn hughes says that richie blackmore found a busker who was singing a song similar to this they brought him onto the starship their plane had him play the song paid him some money and then decided to do the song so this is kind of like based on some busker singing some song about money they said Richie, very. Oh, this is a good part here. transition there but 
Richie delicately puts it. He says, some colored guy came up to me at a party and said, I've got a song for you. So I said, right, leave me alone. But he insisted. So, so he told him to sing it. He starts snapping his fingers and he said it sounded great. So he figured it sounds this good with just him snapping his fingers. It's got to be a good tune for the band. So he said we, re- we rearranged it and added some parts and recorded it. Well, well, I I always thought that they said the word money way too much in the lyrics. <laughs> it is very very money heavy. <laughs> like it's just they keep saying money, money. It's like all right, these lyrics are just driving me nuts. Well, <laughs> well, it um, it reminds me of some of like the street performers or the subway performers, I should say, when I lived in New York, like. They would come on and they'd sing some song. And and you'd see the same people over and over again. You'd be like, oh my God, it's the guy that sings this song again. And they would be very repetitive songs. So it does kind of yeah. match that in my mind. This is a great little guitar solo with the the vocals coming in a little later with the uh, Coverdale and Hughes. Yeah, this is almost like a... Um Like a Speed King type solo. Oh, yeah. You know, Richie doing that kind of quiet little. Yep. Yeah, I don't know. It just popped into my head when I listened to it earlier. I'm like, oh, he kind of does the same thing as Speed King with a little same kind of tone. Listen to him. He's damn funky. Listen to him. Damn funky. Well, aside from the aside from the lyrics being kind of like, I don't know. I mean, I like I like the song, but I always just thought that they they said money too much. Like the lyrics were kind of just like not. In I don't know, like they just kept saying they kept repeating that one yeah. word over and over, and maybe it had like a, a a reason for it but i felt like you kind of get bludgeoned over the head with it you know i always kind of um, equated it with that um wizards convention song too, money to lose or money yeah. to burn which is another song that mentions money a lot <laughs> yeah i don't i don't remember it offhand i'll have to later um, but um, that's that's but... coverdale sings that song uh, oh, okay. on, on wizards convention um, and you know, it's kind of, it's similar, just kind of Coverdale singing about money for however many minutes. So I just kind of like two songs kind of seem like sister songs to me. Um, Glenn Hughes confirms the story that Blackmore gave. He says it was written in our private plane, the starship. He says Blackmore encountered the busker in downtown Chicago, singing a song about money and they invited him to the plane. Then Hughes says blackers, he calls black Blackmore blackers, which I kind of like. <laughs> He says, Blackers, David, myself, and the busker started jamming away on the song. It took about 20 minutes to write. I added the music to the bridge and the vocals to the bridge, and David and I, with the help of our guest, wrote the lyrics. He said, they say, afterward, the busker disappeared and no one could remember his name. Um, I've read other places that they tried to contact him but couldn't find him or whatever. Cause trying to, you figure at some point he probably would have stepped forward and been like, hey, I'm that guy. Um, yeah. then, but the fact that he hasn't done that maybe like did they have him killed or something <laughs> like for that, he, for that song like 
I know it's such a weird. I, obviously, I'm being facetious, but like they're like, I don't know. He just disappeared. It was the weirdest thing, and we couldn't find him to give him all the royalties we owe him for that song, <laughs> the writing credits. It probably could have made a big difference in this busker's life, but um, interesting. I wonder if the busker even remembers or whatever happened to that guy. So that's well. If you if you think about this song, it is like it is kind of a weird song for Deep Purple to do. But if you think about it, it's almost like a companion song to like anyone's daughter because it's kind of out of left field. Oh yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a good good um, analogy. Kind of kind of makes me think of that a little bit. Is it's just like. It's not like the first time that Deep Purple has done something right. kind of like you're like, what the? I always like on? it when bands come out with some curveball song like that. Like, I, I I really find that interesting. And, it, you know, that's kind of my main, I don't want to say complaint because I love the Mark II stuff. But the first few albums are very, like, with a, aside from Anyone's Daughter, they weren't taking a ton of risks. They, they came up with a great formula, they perfected it, and they just nailed those songs. It was so heavy and new and interesting, but at the same time, it wasn't like, where's the diversity? You've, we've seen, you can see what Blackmore and Lord and Glover and all these guys do outside of Deep Purple and what they're capable of, but in that, they just kind of stuck to that formula, and I would have liked to see them branch out a little more. And here, and, Mar- and that's, I think, what I really love the most about Mark III in particular, this album is that they try some different stuff and you know fans aren't going to like that because they want the same thing or whatever they're used to and I think it's important for bands to try to do different material and and keep it interesting. Well yeah, I mean you don't want to do the same thing all the time. I mean then it's just uh, it gets boring. Yep. <clears throat> it gets stagnant, but then you try something different and everybody's like, "Ah, it's different." Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, exactly. There's you can't win. They're just like, ah, oh, they're doing the same old thing. Ah, oh, it's too different. I wanted yeah, it a, to be just as good as Machine Head and just like Machine Head, but different enough. And it's like you, you can, at a certain point, you you can't win. There's not there's no albums they could have put out in Mark Three or even Mark Four that would have made anyone happy. It's just the band. Everything was evolving. There were new members. It was you know, it was only what eight years later or whatever, but so much had changed in pop culture and in recording technology and uh, things were just, things had to change. They were bound to change. So love don't mean a thing. What do you, uh, what do you say? Um, I give it a three and a half. It's like, it's good, but not great. I, I give it four and a half, four and a half pilgrim hats. I really, I really love this one. I love, I love the Hughes and Coverdale dynamic going on in there. I like the little ending. I love Richie's like really kind of low end m- mellow sort of soulful solo. Um, yeah, I just, I really like, I like the cool, the little guitar intro to it. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely like it too. It's um, yeah, it's just, um, it stands out, but not one of my favorites, but I do appreciate all the, the different stuff on it. And again, it's just like, can't really tell that Richie was not into this at all because it doesn't reflect in his playing. I felt like it really reflected in his playing and who do we think we are. And that's why I keep mentioning that is, is because we were just talking about in the last episode is, is like, Richie's one of those people that if he's not feeling it, you can tell mm-hmm. by the way he's playing. And it's like, if he was checked out, then he must have... Maybe it was like the angst going on in his life that he was putting it into his 
playing or something, and well, that's why I it was so good. I don't know. It, it could have had a lot to do with the fact that like he, him, and Ian Gillen just hated each other, and they were in such a bitter feud. He didn't really hate the guys during this. Like he, he got along with them. He just didn't really like the direction of the the music was going in. You know, he didn't like mm-hmm. the funky soul Ellen. But he's like, it's not like he was like getting into verbal altercations with Hughes or Coverdale. He just was like, eh, like. I just don't want to play his funky music. Hmm. And I think he was a little bit more resigned to the fact that like, eh, this is probably going to be it. I'm going to go do something different. Yeah. True. Um, okay. Next up. Holy man. I love this guitar intro. Yeah, some great stuff from Richie. This is the only song that Hughes sings solo. This is a nice pickup going into the chorus, too. Coverdale had written some of this song. This is a Coverdale, Hughes, and John Lord collaboration. And Coverdale had written some of it before being in Deep Purple. And then he remembers John and Ian saying, there is no way on earth you're going to get Richie to play that. <laughs> well, I guess uh, hell froze over. Yep. So Glenn wrote the chorus part, this part. Hughes writes this. And Coverdale wrote the verse part. Well, that might explain why he had some kind of connection to it and did it years later on the Purple album. Right. And and Hughes has always kept this song alive. I love this synth part here, too. I really like talking about that early 70s synth sounds that Lord was getting into. This solo right here is really interesting from Blackmore. This sounds like like a lot of stuff he would go on to play in Rainbow. Mm-hmm. This is a a perfect solo for this song. But I mean, you can see where his style was evolving to. It was playing a lot like this. The interesting thing about that is Hughes wanted him to play a a slide solo on this. And Blackmore was just sitting there and he just wasn't interested. And there was a slide, I guess, across the room. (laughs) So, But he didn't want to get up. So there was a screwdriver on the top of his amp. He just grabbed the screwdriver. He played it with the screwdriver one take and then just walked out. So that was just playing with a screwdriver? (laughs) (laughs) He was just like, ah, I can't be bothered to walk across the room and get the actual slide. 
It's just <laughs> one take Blackmore, and it's and to me it's such a, uh, it's oh. such an iconic solo of this era. <laughs> it's so yeah, perfectly the, suited the, to the song. The story behind it is even better. <laughs> I just love how lazy that is. That's how much effort he was willing to give to this album. He's like, ah, eh, got the screwdriver. But I mean, it's so good. Mm-hmm. Sure is. Some people said that or thought that called to Madonna was a reference to cocaine. I don't know what that even means or why that would be. But Hughes says it was not. He said he's very open about his drug use, but he never wanted to put drug references in the song. He said it wasn't something he was proud of. He says that Holy Man was about having the strength to continue to be on the road. That uh, that Richie Blackmore story reminds me of is do you remember, do you remember the old it was uh it was an early episode of The Simpsons where Mr. Burns is staring staring straight ahead and there's a monitor to his right and it was his birthday and and Smithers goes sir the people of uh, Europe have spelled out your name and candles if you could just turn your head slightly <laughs> to the left and he goes bah no time. <laughs> <laughs> It was like this grand gesture and he couldn't even like just t- tilt his head a little bit this way. That's what it makes. That's what Richie makes me think. I was like, Richie, the slide's like right there. And he's like, nah, exactly. he's like, I can't be bothered. I'd have to get up. <laughs> I'm sure he could have even, even if he would just been saying, Hey, Glenn, could you go get the slide for me? He probably would have done it, but he didn't even have the courtesy to do that. He's just like, ah, just grab the screen. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, so but, good. Um, but yeah, but uh, that's um, I've always really loved that song. I mean, I think like the 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 direction of the album is clearly not burn. Um, it's no. it's completely like just a sharp turn, and the whole mood, the whole vibe of this album is different. Um, like this, pretty much like the last couple of songs, pretty much captured it. But I I like it. It's good, and I mean. You know what I mean? It's like if you want to hear like that heavy rock and stuff, then listen to Burn, listen to Machine Head. You want to hear something a little more mellow? Put on this. Yeah, it's a- it's still, absolutely. It's still it's, good music by good musicians. It's, it's got a mood to it. But at this point in the album, you're kind of almost thinking like, well, where did Stormbringer come from? You know, that kind of, it's kind of setting you up to be like, oh, it's going to be kind of a continuation of Burn. And then it just it brings you down and you're like, oh, it's going to bring us down for a song. Then we'll go back and back up. And then it hits you with Holy Man. And you're like, oh, wow, we're staying mellow. Uh, and it'll eventually get back there. But it's it's um, yeah, it's such a very interesting album. I always thought it was it always really caught caught my eye um mm-hmm. so yeah so Hugh says it was you know it was never about cocaine he said it was about strength and spiritual support the song and um uh Hugh said Blackmore didn't want anyone in the room with him when he was recording the solo but Hugh stayed there anyway um and maybe that's what pissed Blackmore off I don't know <laughs> it's made him go all screwdriver on the solo like <laughs> exactly Oh man! So so, where where are you thinking for Holy Man? Um, I give it a solid four because I enjoy it. All right. Well, I hate to say it. Well, I don't hate to say it, but 
I gave it a five. Five pilgrim hats for Holy oh, Man. Oh, well, since we already, you know, lost the clean rating. Holy shit. <laughs> five. God, you're just giving those fives away like it's nothing. Um, I'm making it rain fives. I, I, I can't help it. I just... That song has always really spoken to me, too. It's just a beautiful song. Jeez. Yeah, no, it, it totally is, but... um yeah, I guess I don't uh I don't regard it as highly in my rating system. Yeah, your rating system you're very stingy with the fives. You've only handed out one so far. Yep. And this rightfully is... so. And I listened to the made from Europe version of You Fool No One on my way home tonight. Give that that one six stars. Yep. <laughs> Mostly because of Richie's solo, which is like just insane. I feel like I haven't listened to that in years. I'll have to dig that one up. It's yeah. not quite as is uh much of a an important album like the way that Made in Japan was so no but I feel not. we'll we'll get to it one day but um not in this main run here yeah okay next up is a song called Hold On I love this keyboard intro little offbeat drums come in. That song's got a nice groove to it. See, again, just this really mellow vibe, mellow groove. Mm-hmm. This came from that idea that John Lord had in the organ. I said, everyone liked it, except for Blackmore, who hated it. <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> it's great. We don't really hear Richie in this song. Well, I mean, until the guitar solo. Yeah, and it's a really good solo. Yeah, and that's, you know, it's, it's... Uh, that's what baffles me. What a, <laughs> what a weirdo. Coverdale says... This song was John's idea. Everyone loved it except for Richie. I sat with him while he did the solo, sitting in the control room with the speakers on. He played it so casually, said he couldn't be bothered, but it was fantastic. (laughs) And here comes Hughes taking over. (laughs) I love that. And Ian Pace says about this song, he says, Richie's ideas about what he will and won't play are quite firmly stated. <laughs> say the least. <laughs> yes, we know. <laughs> they never played this one live. I can I believe this it. Part. This part here is great. Listen to this guitar solo carefully. (laughs) 
Richie Blackmore claims he played the solo with only his thumb. I don't know if I believe that. I think it suits the song perfectly, <laughs> whether it's oh, his yeah. thumb or not. <laughs> I mean, some of those things sounded a little too much for a thumb, but great how it goes into this electric piano solo, too. I don't know if there's a Rhodes or what. It said David Bowie, who was really good friends with uh, Glenn Hughes, loved this song and actually considered covering it. Wow. And Simon Robinson in the liner notes says that the organ may have been inspired by the work that he was doing with Tony Ashton. And if you listen to the opening of this st- song and listen to Pace Ashton Lord, it does sound like a very Pace Ashton Lord style organ opening. David Bowie was in the studio and Glenn Hughes was doing his vocals, just sitting there dancing along while he was recording. Wow, that's cool. Come on, baby, light my fire. I don't think I've really picked up before that. It was just kind of lifting that. Very soulful song. Kind of, it, it speaks to me kind of the same way that Sail Away did, just with the, the, the vibe of it and the. An interesting story in, in Glenn Hughes's autobiography, he talks about being in this uh, studio, um, doing the song. He talks about, um, Bowie being there and his relationship with Bowie and stuff. But then this song is, uh, you know, he, he, he talks about when they were in the studio, he bumped into Stevie wonder because he was recording in the, in the next studio over or whatever. And they ran into each other in the bathroom and he was very, you know, odd to be meeting Stevie wonder. So he said he wanted to give him a tape and show him the song that they were working on. And Stevie touched Glenn's face and his hair. And he ca- he called him Leo because of his hair, like a big mane of hair. Um, he said when he listened to the records and when he listened to the tape of what Glenn Hughes had done, Stevie wonder said, you've been listening to my records. <laughs> Just like, <laughs> yeah. And he said, they talked for about an hour and then he brought, um, he brought him over to meet Coverdale while Coverdale was doing the vocals to hold on. And Coverdale was famous for not wanting anyone in the studio or the room when he was doing his vocals. So mm-hmm. Coverdale was like, ah, Glenn Hughes, you son of a bitch. Why'd you bring anybody in the studio? Don't bring it. He can't see who it is. <laughs> He's just like, why are you bringing people in here? And just kind of yelling at him. And Glenn Hughes is like, oh, but it's Stevie wonder. And then, uh, Coverdale was just like, oh my God. And they came out and they, they played with them and sung with them for a little bit and kind of had a oh. good old time. So <laughs> that's wild. Kind of, kind of cool story there. Imagine having been there for that. Um, and then, you know, they kind of formed a friendship too. Cause Hughes went and was with 
Stevie Wonder while he was recording songs in the key of life um, and kind of witnessed some of that, which is one of my all time favorite albums. So that would have been something to see. Mm-hmm. All right. So what do you think about hold on? Well, after hearing it now, I'm going to, I'm going to leave it um, at a four. Okay. I think it's a solid song. I think, you know what? I think like, I don't know, Coverdale's performance in it. Like I love Coverdale's vocals and, and Richie's solo thumb or no thumb, you know, <laughs> great. like I think it's still, it's really, it's just this upbeat, like it's just a good solo. So what do you give? I'm giving a 4.5 Pilgrim hats. Big, big Ooh. fan of hold on. Yeah. The solo is great. It's it's so super soulful and just really captures the song really well. Um, yeah, and it's yeah. I just like I don't know. There's something about this album in general. Just the vibe of it, I really really like. I love the direction it's going. It's unfortunate that um, <laughs> it wouldn't be going in that direction for much longer. That, that Richie hated it. <laughs> and Richie, it's always just very weird. You know, like this album. I really it wasn't until we started researching this show and I started watching when we were texting a while back and I started watching some documentaries and I'm like, Oh man, the albums that I really like, like just are universally hated <laughs> by the band and the fans. I'm oh. like, I don't know what it is about me that likes them, but anyway, mm-hmm. I, I do love this album. <laughs> um, okay. Next up we've got lady double dealer. Kind of the first proper riff, really, of the album. Yeah. The little delay effect on the vocals. It's really the only rocker on the album. Yeah. I guess Highball Shooter might be, too. But not... not at this level, this is the highest tempo song for sure. Oh yeah, like Stormbringer's heavy, but this one is definitely like just like powering down the road. Classic fills by Richie. Yep, and it's a short song. It's only a little over three minutes. And this was written by Blackmore and Coverdale. Just. Actually amazed how good Coverdale's vocals are. Like he's just really putting a lot of energy into all of his performances. Yeah. Then this part here is kind of This is great. And this goes into a very cool upbeat solo again. Like Yeah. And the Glenn Hughes bridge part there too is like I lo- I like it a lot. I just it kind of comes out of nowhere. Like I, I think it's almost a little too much of a departure from the 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 main verse of the song. <laughs> Coverdale love and playing with that delay. <laughs> Oh, 
Nice little, I think that's some slide work. I don't wonder if he used the screwdriver again or if he went <laughs> if he got up. <laughs> Maybe they recorded this song first and that's why the slide was on the other side of the song. <laughs> on the other side of the studio. <laughs> oh my god. And the organ kind of doubling it up there. This ending is just, really Yeah, cool crazy. ending. Lord and Pace and Hughes are all just on that slowdown like perfectly on you know just dang, dang. as it's slowing down they're just hitting every beat perfectly it's really nice yeah. Richie's a little bit more just kind of ding, 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 kind of noodling a little bit but it works really great yeah I'm, I'm just happy that there's like a, a friggin rocker on the album I mean you know it, it really it makes it stand out because the rest of the album is just very like it's the only it, it's weird because it's like it's really high tempo and it's really different but it's still it still sounds kind of like like mellow you know i think it's yeah. it's got to be i think it's the production and the 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 performances and everything is is like it still fits in with the album but it's definitely like higher octane than the than the rest of the songs yeah yeah and yep. i mean i don't know i love richie's playing on this album i still it's it's just the more that I hear how good it is, the more that I just like hate him because I'm just like, how could he, <laughs> how could he dislike this so much? How could he just like, I want to, I want to be that good on my worst day. You know, it's yeah, like, I know. I want to just like show up to something I'm completely not interested in and just nail it a hundred percent. Yeah. And just not, not even like music, just life. You know, it's just like, I just want to yeah. show up to anything and just be like, meh. And everybody's like, <laughs> like as you're, as you're like walking out the door cause you don't care. And everyone's just giving you a standing ovation. <laughs> Getting a standing ovation as I'm like, like just like giving everybody the finger and not even looking, you know, like just picture yeah, exactly. Richie doing that, you know. Yeah, it's but, like yeah, it's like the equivalent of like just buying a like a, a box of cake mix and throwing an egg and some oil into it, and just stirring it, throwing it in the oven, and just the people, it's the best cake I've ever had. And you're like, eh, what the hell? I don't care. <laughs> it's okay. from a box. It's from a box. <laughs> but it's so good. Um, okay, so what do you give Lady Double Dealer? Uh, 4.5. Ah, okay. I, g- I give it 4. I like it a lot. I like the upbeat tempo. I think that the Hughes part of it is is just a, it's a little off. I like it a, I like it a lot, but it's like almost seems like they tried a little too hard to shoehorn it into that song. But but it's a I great song. I don't feel it shoehorned. That's an interesting you know, uh, point of view. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it is about it. it. Just it seemed like an afterthought to me. Um, but and you know, you know how I feel about Glenn Hughes. So anything he's singing, I'm wow. <laughs> I'm all on board. I'm like, yes, yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, so, all right. Next up, track number six. You can't do it right with the one you love. Little Earth, Wind, and Fire. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of a an oddly. It starts off like thinking it's going to be heavy, but then it switches it up real fast to funky. Right here. Yeah, 
Oh, Richie is a damn funky. I love how just that vamp he's doing on on the guitar. They hit that note together right there. It's great. This is really good. Hughes was the biggest part behind the song, which is probably not too surprising. Oh, yeah, <laughs> of course. Love that need more than the music line, the way he belts that out. So good. This sounds very Coverdale. He must have written this part. Great solo from John Lord coming up. Yep. Playing around with one of those synths again. The song is credited to Blackmore, Coverdale, and Hughes. And I can see like that that riff sounds very Blackmore, but the production of it is very like Hughes. Yeah, because I could see him wanting to do that same riff, just like a distorted guitar, more straightforward rock. Yeah. And I always can't help but think like, what would that riff have turned into, and in, if if he had used it in Mark II, you know, like what would the differences have been? It wouldn't have sounded anything like this. <laughs> No. This is one of those ones that never made any sense to me lyrically, but I didn't care. It's like, it's like you can't do it right with the one you love. Nothing you can do without the one you love. It's just, I, I was like, I always love it, and I sing it, but I don't yeah. know what it means. <laughs> yeah, I can't wrap my head around it. Yeah, <laughs> it, it to me it sounds it seems just kind of contradictory and like it doesn't make any sense. But honestly, I don't give a crap if Hughes and Coverdale are pairing up on it. They can they could sing a song about how much I personally suck, and I'd be like, yes, this is great. <laughs> um, interesting thing I found looking to this is Simon Robinson once again in the liner notes states that he thinks this song inspired a very famous song, Life in the Fast Lane by the Eagles. Take a quick listen. Interesting. Another song I've heard a million times but never occurred to me until I listened to them side by side. Even this wow. part, you know? 
At first I thought wow. it was, oh, it's just the riff part, but even this part sounds very similar. Wow, I never, never thought of that. Me either. Simon Robinson's a wise, wise man. So, I think everyone's heard this song before, but... Interesting. You hear it in a different light listening to it right after that song. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely, it's 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 damn funky. <laughs> it's damn funky. Those, it's he, like, that Joe Walsh is damn funky. Well, I guess he, he was damn it. funky. <laughs> and he knows it. <laughs> you know. Um, all right. You can't do it right with the one you love. Nothing I can do about the one I love. There you go. Nothing you, or nothing, whatever. <laughs> I don't know. I can't, I don't even know what I'm singing. Four. Four. Yeah, I give it a four too. Toyed with 4.5 yeah. because I really do like it. Yeah, I think it's um, it it's it's just it's solid, you know. It's like I'm actually like liking more of the songs than I thought I would, just because I'm thinking coming off Burn, it's like I know that this is a different type of album. Am I really gonna like it that much? But I mean, I really do. But you have to be in the mood to listen to it. Mm-hmm. I'm usually in the mood to listen to it, but because it's but, so difficult. Yeah. Oh, I know this is in like right in your and I your, I, I, your I really alley. thought of it more. I'm I am looking at it differently now. Like you know, like I've said, of Burn and Stormbringer, I've, I wore those albums out, you know, years ago, and I did kind of think of them as more being similar to each other. And the the more I listen to this, I'm like, wow, this is a this is a very big departure. Yeah, and I can see why it would have turned away some of the diehards or some of the people who were didn't like that style for sure. Well, it's two different bands, you know. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like two different bands. I mean, first of all, like, can we talk about how John Lord plays no organ on this album at all? That is that true? Well, have you heard an organ? Okay, good, good, good point. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, halfway through the album, I'm like, you're talking about the synth and everything and him using all yeah. these different things. And I'm like, maybe he was experimenting around this time because, I mean, it's obviously John Lord, but I mean, it's just like it's he's not doing... He doesn't, you know, have any of his like, you know, like screeching, yeah. wailing, like, uh, you know, trip over the keyboard type moments. Like, I mean, <laughs> he's he's definitely doing his thing. But I mean, I think that's a, the reason that a lot of this is like a lot, a lot uh, like poppier and a lot lighter than the other albums is like he doesn't have that really heavy. Like, yeah, organ I mean, going I, on. I, 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 he he may have used some organ on the album, but it's definitely not. It's, it's not featured the same way, and it's not sold the same way. I mean, well, the next two songs w- would be the the biggest candidates for potentially having some of that. But yeah, yeah, you you make a really good point. At least all the soloing for sure is done with synths, and I maybe that's part of what it does. I've always loved that like seventies analog synth sound. Always been a huge fan of it. I love I love the interplay between that analog synth and like acoustic instruments and you know, like that's part of what I really like love about Wizards Convention and Butterfly Ball. You hear like an acoustic guitar with like this crazy 70s synth behind it. And it's just such a the dynamic of that. I always really, really loved. And, you know, mm. when you get into later synth iterations, as we talked about before in the 80s, when it was like all layered synths and, you know, really in my opinion, cheesy sounding reverb drums and everything that I don't go for at all. But mm. but this kind of like 
straight ahead 70s rock with synths that that mixture has always been really my thing mm. so okay that was we rated that one right yes we yeah <laughs> Four. uh next up this was high ball shooter credited to all five members of the band high ball shooter hmm. hell you can tell who wrote the opening riff to this <laughs> he uses bass in the background there is just great listening for the organ now <laughs> but this is there's kind of an organ there But again, not as forward in the in the solo category. So Blackmore said he was so disgusted by Highball Shooter that he didn't even know the title or lyrics until the album was released. (laughs) Blackmore's quote is, I didn't stick around to find out the title of the song, although I recall it's in the key of A. (laughs) You gotta think he's putting it on for some of this, just like, just for us, because we eat it up. We think it's hilarious, but... (laughs) Um... Hughes is very yeah. complimentary of Pace's drumming in this. Says the the kick, the way he kicked it off. He says this rhythm section with him and Pace was just really. He says Pace was on fire, and he felt like it was such a really good mix between the two of them. Oh, I was wrong. There it is. There you go. Yep. classic but it's funny to get this late into an album before you really hear the classic lord and i think this is the only song where he does this right maybe in the gypsy but i'm not sure definitely not in soldier of fortune just really makes you realize how big a part of the classic deep purple sound this is his organ yes because it's like I'm just kind of like I feel like I just went home it's like ah there we are yeah and this part of the song sounds like the most classic deep purple where they all link up here is really great great way to come out of the solo Uh, Steve Pilkington in that great on track book says this is some of the worst lyrics ever to grace a deep purple song even counting some of the horrors Gillen had visited upon us Yeah, 
Glenn Hughes says they were two two songs short for the album, and this one was added at the end, so as a kind of filler. Hmm. Little false ending there. Coverdale always throwing that shit at the end of songs. <laughs> like a haha or a ugh, you know, just some kind of exasperated sigh or <laughs> well, he is giving it his all for sure. Yeah. So that is Highball Shooter. Not a fan. Uh Richie Blackmore is not a fan of the song. Um, I don't understand why. I mean, it sounds like so many things we would have heard Deep Purple do over the years. It's Yeah. Um I always like, I mean, this is probably the song where I could tell he wasn't into it because it's just like, I don't know if it was the production or the way he played it or something, but like when that riff came in, like that opening riff, it was just, it, it's not, it's always sounded weak to me. Yeah. You know, because, you know, I mean, that's, yeah, that's a classic, like kind of Richie groove or something, but it just, the, the whole song just felt like it really had no balls. Hmm. To me, I mean, the only redeeming quality about it is John Lord finally plays an organ solo. Yeah, but, I, th- but I, mean, I mean, you know, I think Coverdale and Hughes on this whole album give great performances, and I think they're definitely giving yeah. it their all. Yeah, but I mean, um, for me, I, I feel like this is definitely a throwaway song. Yeah, like yeah, it's, it's it's filler, and yeah. Hughes says as much. This and the Gypsy were kind of added at the last minute. Yeah, but I mean, you can you can kind of tell. So, um, my rating for this is a three. Three, I yeah. gave it a four. Like I'm high on this album. I don't know. I tell you, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I, it doesn't. Uh, I just think like maybe, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, Coverdale and Hughes definitely still are rocking out, but um, I just feel like the maybe the production and maybe Richie's performance are kind of bring it down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 like it's not one of my go tos on the album. I usually skip this one in the Gypsy. I kind of think that they're boring. All right. Speaking of the Gypsy, there we <laughs> go. The Gypsy. I do like the way it begins, though. Yeah, it's a very. I find this song to be very like kind of almost haunting. This this little riff here. And this is definitely very early Rainbow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Like, this is probably, like, the best Rainbow song that Rainbow never recorded. <laughs> this song, um, when I was researching the album for the episode, like... You know, you listen to albums a million times, but you don't necessarily know all the names of the songs. Like, I'm looking at all the names of the songs. Like, I know all these songs. I'm like, which one is the Gypsy? And then I played it. I'm like, oh, of course, that song. <laughs> yeah. But I really like it. I just. It doesn't have like that that same hook to really clue you in on, on the title of the song. 
so many albums like that where I've listened to them a million times and like I'll pick up the album and be like, oh, that's what that song's called. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm singing along. I don't even know the names of the songs. I mean, I kind of like the way that like he keeps layering the guitar parts. They just keep it's just keeps yeah. building and building. And he just like sl- yeah, he goes keeps moving up on them. I like how they both sing the the uh, verses, but I kind of. Uh, Kind of always picture this of like uh, I always pictured Dio singing this. I think that if this were a Rainbow song and Dio was singing it, it would have been better. Yeah, I I could. I wonder if they ever did this with Rainbow. Probably not. I mean, even the even I mean even the the title, the Gypsy. It sounds like something you would have written in Rainbow on the yes. first couple of albums. You know. I like this breakdown. It's bringing out the shakers and kind of. Gets a little, little more mellow. And you've got Kinda that like, the shakers from like the mule. It almost sounds like <laughs> almost sounds like Riders on the Storm in the background with Lord, Lord playing the Fender Rhodes maybe or electric piano. Oh yeah. Very like more composed solo, almost kind of like the, almost like the mistreated solo. You're right about that haunting feeling, though. Yeah, I just this song is always. I, I love the vibe of it. It just always struck me as being like this. It's got this more narrative story telling to the lyrics too, rather than just being about you know a drifter without a home or whatever. <laughs> ah, Coverdale. I like this part too. That that boy, that be doo be doo doo. Well, almost very similar to mistreated. The end there, the at the end of the that little phrase. I kind of like songs like this that are like have this epic sort of close to them without being the final song on the album. Another song like that strikes me like that is it um, I think it's S-A-T-O off of Diary of a Madman. I was just gonna say that! Oh my god, that's crazy. You know, like, it's it's got this like epic feeling to it, like the album's coming to a close, but then they hit you with something else after that. That's crazy that we were thinking of the same exact song. (laughs) Even though that song doesn't really sound anything like this song, but... No, but it's it's the same concept. Yeah, it's the same concept that build to this, like, oh, it's this epic... We're coming to a close. And then the same way Diary of a Madman comes in and kind of has more of a... mellow, gothic kind of feel to it, Soldier of Fortune comes in and has not so much of a gothic feel, but a very, like, more of a mellow close to the album. Mm-hmm. So it's, I, I mean, I doubt that, <laughs> I doubt that that Diary of a Madman was modeled off of that, but I love that dynamic. Mm-hmm. So that is weird that we were both thinking of that. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it until just now, but um, well, it's I mean, it's obvious. I mean, we both like grew up on Ozzy and 
yeah. all that other stuff. So, of course, we're going to make those same comparisons. Yeah, we're kind of our minds are in the same place usually with that sort of stuff. So the gypsy, what say you on the gypsy? You know, I, I kind of actually liked it better than I thought. Um, I, I guess that like I lumped that one and highball shooter in together. And so I'm just kind of like, yeah, that wasn't. But I'm going <laughs> to give it like I'll give it a three and a three point five just because Dio wasn't singing on it. I'm subtracting <laughs> a half a point. It doesn't seem fair to <laughs> subtract a half point. You know, guys, if you'd had Dio come in and sing this, you know, maybe I can give you a higher score. <laughs> well, just because I think it's it's a great song and you know how I feel about Coverdale and Hughes, everybody should know by now. Mm-hmm. Love those guys, but I just don't think that their vocals were right on this. I think it's it should have been a Rainbow song. Yeah, I think we got to see if dig up if we can find that Rainbow ever did this. Probably not, but I but I mean, that. I could like you know listen to it in my head and just put Ronnie's voice in there. But either there way, go. like great song, but not fully executed. But you know, I I do like most of it, so I definitely will give it like the the upper the upper half of the average rating, you know? Yep. So how about you? I go with four pilgrim hats on the gypsy. I do really like the the setup for what's to come next and the whole feeling and vibe of the song. Cool. Okay. And then we come to the album closer. Uh, this will be the last song that Blackmore and Coverdale ever work on together and that song is Soldier of Fortune I'm busting out the acoustic I'm trying to think have they has he done acoustic on any songs before he must have not since like Mark 1 probably sure there's one with forgetting but Not the drifter. <laughs> Another song about a drifter. He, he, they, this is a song that's been performed by everybody to every possible member of Deep Purple. And I saw a video of him performing it the other night with Blackmore's Night. So Blackmore says the other three members of the band hated this song. It was written by just Blackmore and Coverdale. And he says, I know. What is wrong with everybody? (laughs) My God. It's like Richie hates this one. They hate this one. It's like, can't everybody just like one of these songs? Yeah. So Blackmore and Coverdale recorded a demo with Blackmore playing bass. And when the band heard it, they liked it. (laughs) They re-recorded it. This is fantastic. Solo by Richie. This is beautiful. Blackmore says, David and I wrote that song. It's one of my favorite songs. It's got a few of those medieval chords. You'll be surprised how difficult it was to convince the others to play that song. John fairly quickly said, okay, but Ian and Glenn didn't want to know about it. So I said, I'll play your funky song if you'll play mine. Glenn hated the songs. He thought it was shit. Ian quit after two takes as well. Not enough for him to do in that song to prove himself. 
And I love these like synths kind of swelling here in the background. Maybe like a Mellotron in there, I can't tell. But it's like, I feel like if they had gotten actual strings, it also almost would have been cheesier. <laughs> you know, like I, I love that synth and acoustic together. It's very distinctive sound. Okay, and nobody can talk during the end. This is the best. Mm, nope. That's a great way to end the album. I think yeah, I think it ends on the on the major key, you know, like goes mostly being a minor song and ends on the major note. There, it's real nice song. Yeah, Coverdale says that him and Blackmore shared an, a love of early Jethro Tull, and they liked incorporating Bach and English folk music together, and it's kind of where that came from. Hmm. Um, Blackmore was reportedly. Disappointed that the lyrics were not more literal about an actual soldier returning from home. It was more of a, um, you know, so it's weird. I think that would have been much worse. <laughs> like, These people have like hard opinions on like friggin' everything. Yes. Yeah, I guess they do. Um, and yeah, that's that's the close of, of Stormbringer, the end of the Mark III recorded era and the last song that Blackmore and Coverdale would collaborate on. How about how about Hughes? What about did him? Did he ever collaborate with Hughes ever again? Oh no, no. Well, no, not after um, not after Mark Three that I'm yeah. aware of. So. All right, so all right, brace yourself. I'm braced. Five, five I, pilgrim hats. <laughs> oh my goodness. I, I, I just I lo I've always loved this song. I think it's like when I'm in the mood for it, it's just like it's like the best like slow song ever. I it's great. It. It's great. It's a great way to close out the album with you know on that note rather than just having like a, a straight up rocker or whatever. It's uh, that's why I feel like the combination between like the gypsy coming into this song is 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 great. And uh, you know I gave every other song on this side of the album I gave four pilgrim hats too but i also give soldier of fortune five pilgrim hats wow we got our i think that's our first double five yep yeah it's like the i don't know whatever the five whatever the snake eyes of fives are <laughs> jad the jazz hands we give them jazz hands, jazz hands. <laughs> it's, yeah i wow. mean it's it's great it's a it's a near perfect song as far as i'm concerned i think it's a, a beautiful song Great lyrics, beautifully executed by Coverdale. Blackmore's guitar solo and his intro and chord progression. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's the end of that. That's the end of that. That's Stormbringer. Where does so what how do we make sense of all that all those well, ratings? Where well, are we at? Well, let me 
I'm kind of blown away by this one. This now has our highest combined rating. <laughs> I think I might be Probably, pushing it a little more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it it it's only like it's only beats uh, Burn by a couple of points. Mm-hmm. It's a and honestly, Burn. So. My if it wasn't for a two hundred, my take on a two hundred. Yeah. That's what bring it brought it down because I mean that that three really hurt it. Like if if that song wasn't even on the album, the burn would have been elevated. But um, I um oh wait a minute, sorry my computer's asking me when I want to restart it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> not now. I thought it was something worse than that. Not uh, now. No, it's just it was it'd be terribly inconvenient if it decided to reboot now. Yeah. So anyways, Windows um, loves to do that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Stormbringer was like really like uh, my my rating, my total rating for is a three point nine four. You clearly loved it more at a four point three nine. Mm, wow, that's high. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is way more than burn. Um, but. Even my rating for Burn wasn't as high as yours for Stormbringer, which is, um, yeah, just Stormbringer seemed to have gotten a lot more, well, yeah, love all around, although my my overall rating for it was less. Yeah, you but had not, a few, few 3.5s in there, or three, I think, and I but, didn't have but anything not by, either for not by two, Not by too, too much, though. No. Um, which is... Um, I don't know. I'm just kind of like... I'm really, I'm really blown away that this has the... Like it just it edged out burn just a little bit. I mean, I could see why, but it's just like I wouldn't have predicted that this would have been, you know, as highly rated album. But then again, like you said, they, I think you kind of uh, your love for all things funky, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm damn what, funky in my tastes is what is what um, what brought it up there. And plus the fact that, I mean, if you're if you're rating things like way up here and I just plain like things and I'm and I don't like if I'm it was totally in the opposite direction that would have like brought it brought our ratings down but um I mean I can acknowledge kind of in its own bubble what a good album it is so right that's that's burn okay no that's no that's I mean, that's <laughs> Living in the past. We talked about burn too. That's stop living. Stop living in the past, man. Stop living in the past. All right. So next up. So just kind of concluding the album. It didn't perform as well as past albums. It went gold in America after a few weeks, which is pretty good. It was certified gold on January 9th, 1975. It peaked at six in Britain, number 10. It was in the top 10 in most European countries. In America, it reached number 20 and stayed there for 20 weeks. Coverdale handled all the press about the album. In an interview with NME, Coverdale said, There's a whole lot of new ideas going down. It isn't contrived rock and roll. That is true. And then we've got the, the Rolling Stone review. Which, oh boy, <laughs> hang on. Hang on, let me brace myself here. <laughs> I feel like we need a jingle for the, the Rolling Stone buzzkill review of, mm-hmm. of whatever the latest Deep Purple is. Oh, um, sad trumpet, maybe. This one is by Alan Neister, and it ran in January 30th, 1975. It says, With Burn and now Stormbringer, Deep Purple has attempted to prove, firstly, that replacing the departed Ian Gillen and Roger Glover with David Covered and Glenn Hughes has no way weakened the highly successful and profitable Deep Purple sound. Uh, and secondly... 
that to continue to sell albums, the band need no longer rely on the unique but overdone speedo riff rock that made the five albums from its in-rock to made-in-Japan quadrillion sellers. While the two newcomers are just as competent as their predecessors, as witnessed on the title cut and one of the real throwbacks to the Machine Head days. Um, I don't know if I'd say Stormbringer sounded like Machine Head. But, no. Um, the attempts that the band has made at diversifying its sound have been only partly successful. Uh, well, the the group um, Hold On should be rightly considered one of the neatest, most accessible, and rockiest songs they've ever done. Slower-paced stuff like Holy Man or the Uriah Heap-like Gypsy hardly rate above the commonplace. Stormbringer still exhibits a few points of flash, the occasional familiar Blackmore riff or Lord Organ Whale, but in total, it's a far cry from the band's peak. So not terrible review. No, I would say it's actually like pretty, like it's a pretty dead on. Yeah, yeah, it's not. Um, for I can't most disagree of it, I mean, with much. No, well, I mean, except for the fact that they were talking about Lord's organ, which was not present except for in one song. So yeah, clearly, clearly, he did not listen to it. <laughs> um. So. John Lord, in an interview with Mick Burgess, says, David and Glenn certainly did have more of an influence on Stormbringer for the simple reason that Richie took his eye off the ball as he had his idea in his head about Rainbow. He could have been stronger during the making of Stormbringer, and if he had been stronger, then Stormbringer could have been a better album. Not that it's a bad album, but it could have been a better one. It's quite a confusing album. At the time, our fans got a little confused by it. With Burn, we picked up the torch and ran with it. I just wish we could have stayed with it. I think Richie lost a bit of energy trying to deal with the runaway train that was Glenn Hughes. At the time, he was a bit of a loose cannon and hard to deal with, and I think Richie had just had enough. Wow. So, you know, I'm, I can only imagine being in a band with Glenn Hughes when he was starting to get really into cocaine was not a fun thing. <laughs> Yeah. John Lord talks about it in interviews just very nonchalant. Oh, yeah, we'd have a little sniff of this and a little drink of that and a little puff of that. And, you know, he's very like, I don't know. I don't know how you deal with it. I guess you just were used to it back then. Um, so Blackmore talks about why there wasn't much guitar in the album. He says this. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> because he's because I refused. <laughs> yeah, I refused the. um I forgot to mute the um, intro outro, so I'm hearing it in my headphones and it's very hard to concentrate. It's Oops. almost over, though. Uh, Blackmore talks about why there wasn't much guitar. He says, there wasn't as much guitar because in a way I was going through some personal problems and I didn't have the people there that I wanted to record with. I was thinking about other things when I should have been thinking about the music. So he's pretty honest about it. Hmm. In an interview with Sounds, Blackmore says... I don't like funk. It bores me to tears, but this is as far as it goes. It's the end of that. Back to rock and roll on the next LP, but apparently never happened. Hmm. Blackmore, um, <laughs> in Neil Pretty's Purple Records book, which is a great, great uh, reference, he says, Stormbringer was crap. <laughs> That's the whole quote. <laughs> there you go, folks. Hughes in uh, Martin Popoff's Sail Away book, which is like history of Whitesnake, but kind of starts off with some of the Deep Purple stuff. He says, when David and I came in, the band started to become more, and I'm going to say soulful, because we grew up in the north of England and we grew up listening to American R&B. Rather than trying to replace Gillen and Glover with two lookalikes and soundalikes, they replaced them with two different 
commodities. It showed very strongly on Stormbringer what it was all about. And I like the change in music. I don't want to make Burn 2. Led Zeppelin did a really good job in their career making different records every time. So that's how I feel about Stormbringer. It's a different record. Ian Pace says, David was the new kid on the block and he was very malleable. He was just enjoying the vibe of being in a a big rock and roll band. Glenn's influences were so different, although on the first album, Burn, they were kept under control. When it came down to getting to the second one, Stormbringer, I mean, Glenn can't help it. He likes the music that he likes, and he was starting to change it. So it was starting to uh, change from being a hard rock and roll band to something that was becoming a little more funky, which Richie hated. And then Coverdale says, oh my god, I wrote two songs which could have could be termed heavy metal or whatever. I've never embraced the term heavy metal because all my themes are emotional, but I wrote two songs to keep Richie Blackmore happy, which were Burn, which I still think is a classic, and Stormbringer, which basically, if you look at the lyrics, they are more or less sci-fi poems, but it never felt comfortable to me to have those. In fact, I think it's where he got the name Rainbow from, the hook in Stormbringer. Burn, I can enjoy any time of the day, but I really don't go for Stormbringer. Hmm funny to think that he thinks that about Stormbringer um, and then Hugh uh, Coverdale also said the year I joined Deep Purple I, the mostly played records I had were Sly and the Family Stones there's a riot going on and Stevie Wonder's music in my mind and Donny Hathaway's live so talking about the soul music he's getting and then a final quote from Hughes the crazy thing about Richie's disliking of what he calls shoeshine music a term I find to be less than amusing is that on songs like Hold On and You Can't Do It Right and Love Don't Mean a Thing, which he played on, the only word for it, a description of his style, is funky. Check out his picking. He's astonished us with the way he used his right hand. He played wonderfully and appropriately. And I'll agree with that. Yeah. does a great job. So things start to kind of fall apart here. Blackmore on Stormbringer really wanted to do a cover of Black Sheep of the Family by Quatermass. He was dead set on having this on the album and the rest of the band just refused. So for the first time, everyone else is refusing. Um, They said, we don't want to do it partly because they they just didn't want to do a cover, partly because they would lose the publish the, uh, the writing credits and and the money from that. So they just didn't want to do it. And Blackmore, as we've talked about from episode one, I think just loves that friggin' song. He, he's, he wants to do it all the time. He loves the song. It's a good song. Um, and wanted and to bring won- it into Deep Purple, and they weren't well, happy. He won- yeah. Well, he wound up doing it on Blackmore's Rainbow, and with Ronnie singing it. And actually, I I don't know why he loves it so much because I actually it was one of my least favorite songs on. Yeah, it, it's I like it. I just it's not. Yeah, it it I I don't know why he's so obsessed with it. I guess he had heard it when they were doing the In Rock album. Mick Underwood had popped in and given him a tape of it because mm-hmm. he was in Quatermass with with um, yeah. John Gustafson and he fell in love with it and he's always loved it um, so he didn't like the fact that they weren't using his ideas uh, he, he he claims he brought them other songs that they didn't want to do um, Lord remembers it a little differently John Lord uh, he says um, um, during the sessions he says they, 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 they would play things and he says I'm saving that for my solo album again so he's playing the same kind of routine he did mm-hmm. during Who Do We Think We Are um, nope nope this is for my solo album you know just being kind of <laughs> a prissy little jerk <laughs> <laughs> uh, the band were making huge amounts of money uh, from their touring bringing in over 100,000 pounds after four shows in the US so that's huge huge money even for nowadays never mind back then 
Um, and then their accountant told them they all had to move out of the UK for tax purposes because they were getting taxed well over 90% at this point. So oh. they all moved, basically, they all moved to California. And Blackmore went first, and then Lord and Hughes and Pace followed him, as, as well as Coverdale. Coverdale claims he was being taxed 98% because of their earnings, which is insane. Jesus Christ. I mean, even, uh, you know, geez, even though I'm sure they were making good money, that's that's a lot. Anything over 90% is pretty big. Um. And then their contact, they were less contact with their management because they were thousands and thousands of miles away. Um, they all had kind of developed their own routines. Their live set changed up a bit. They started layering in some of these new songs. They did a short tour around the, around the States. And then Blackmore approaches Coverdale and says, I want you to leave Deep Purple and come with me and form this new band, Rainbow. And Coverdale declines because he wants to you know, keep going with Deep Purple, the known entity. That would have been interesting. So then Blackmore's next move was to take, you know, they were very familiar with Elf. He takes Dio out, gets him drunk, and and then convinces him to go in the studio and record Black Sheep of the Family. (laughs) Um, And Blackmore liked the working relationship so much, they they, they did a a B-side. So they end up deciding they're going to release Black Sheep of the Family as a single, and they're going to release a B-side. And um, that eventually ends up developing. Elf released the album Trying to Burn the Sun, and Blackmore flew in Mickey Lee Soul, Gary Driscoll, Craig Gruber to Munich. They all work on this album. They bang it out, and now then you have the first Rainbow album done relatively quickly. And at the time, Deep Purple didn't even know this was going on. They didn't even know he was working on this project. Martin Birch was kind of the only one who knew because <laughs> he's engineering the new album. Oh, the Wasp. Probably a little easier to keep things under wraps in those days. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's like, was he keeping it a secret or was the band just not paying attention? They're all in America hanging out. And I mean, he's in Germany at the time. Like, how would they have known? Yeah, um, true. Um, I mean, Bowie asks Hughes to go to New York to work on his Young Americans album. But Blackmore reportedly refused to let him go. He was just like, <laughs> which is funny, considering the it's like somebody cheating on somebody and then being mad that the, they were also cheating on them. Um, yeah. But he's like, no, you can't do it. You, you know, wouldn't let it and Hughes was kind of upset about that which I understand um so they Blackmore Pace Coverdale all head to Yugoslavia to meet up with Hughes and Lord and they do two shows in Yugoslavia which was a big deal because this was like the first they were like behind the Iron Curtain playing in a Soviet you know Eastern Bloc country uh, and that was a pretty big big mm-hmm. moment from them um they said the you know, like just just being there and being that in that environment and uh, experiencing that, and they they were excited to see Deep Purple there too. So, um, Blackmore says that he told a journalist during that show. He says, "See these hands? I probably own two fingers if I'm lucky. The rest belong to management. All I've been ripped off all my life, and I'm undervalued, and I'm sick of it." He goes this kind of big rant, um, and so the end is <laughs> coming very quickly. Black, oh Blackmore was now, you know, he's touring with his band promoting this album that he feels nothing for. He doesn't like it at all. And, you know, the reviews of the concerts seem to kind of say the same thing, that Blackmore just wasn't interested. Yeah. You know, he, just, he was on stage. He wasn't really into it. And by the end, Blackmore is kind of isolated from the band. He's not communicating with them. Um, 
midway through the tour, Blackmore tells the management he's quitting. They keep it a secret from the band, but of course they figure out that something's up. They record. They recorded the last few shows uh, with Blackmore in Paris, um, and Coverdale thanks the crowd at the end of the show, says, we hope you can see you again in some shape or form, kind of indicating that he knew what was up to. Coverdale wants to press on. Some Lord and Pace are talking about just get, giving up, getting rid of the band. And uh, on one of the last shows, the recording is made in Europe. Uh, Hughes says he, he was doing a line of coke in the bathroom and Richie comes out of the stall and sees him there. And then he felt like really self-conscious, like, uh, like, and then he's like, oh man, it's been really great working with you. And, and, um, Blackmore riches on the best of luck. And that was it. You know, up to that point, Hughes had been like dabbling in cocaine, but at this point it's like become a huge problem and things obviously, as we know, are about to change with his yeah. recreational use is going to become a problem. So that's the end of Stormbringer and the end of Mark three. Wow. End of an era. And ended on a high note, apparently, for me. <laughs> yeah. Not for anyone else, really. <laughs> yeah, just always you. <laughs> Friggin' five for Mary Long. <laughs> I have no um no regrets. I'd do it all again if I had to. <laughs> I know. Okay, so some quick history before we wrap up this show, which will be coming out on August. 26th and the week of August 26th through September 1st. Can't believe we're talking about September already. Yeah, tell me about it. We've got a few landmark days. So first off, we've got a birthday and that birthday is on what's the date? August 27th, 1960. Neil Murray was born. Holding that base which you would bring with him to White Snake at a later time. Nice. Next up, speaking of White Snake, Mickey Moody. It's an old picture. Wow, yeah. I don't <laughs> if you Playing, didn't say that was him, I wouldn't have known. I know, right? You, you expect a like a goatee or whatever. Um yeah. with the Gibson SG there. Really old. Wow. Yeah, really old. And that shirt, that's a shiny, shiny shirt there. So Mickey <laughs> Moody was born uh, August 30th, 1950, 10 years before Neil Murray. And then on September 1st, 1973, the James Gang releases the album Bang. I always love this album cover. So this is their first album with Tommy Bolin. Tommy Bolin there on the right with the hat. They're all kind of like dressed like Old West sort of, sort of, riders with Billy the Kid or whatever and there's a little horse next to Tommy Bolin <laughs> it's a very little horse it looks like a real horse but it's the size of a cat yeah um, and they're on the on this like weird bed with a wheel and looking at albums it's a very odd album cover but a great album mm-hmm. and then on August 27th 1978 Gillen plays their first show at the Reading Festival. So look at all these characters. <laughs> uh, they, yeah, and sorry that we're talking about a photo, but you get you've well, this show. This picture will be in the show notes. But yeah, this cast of characters and the the band Gillen is incredible. I mean, Ian Gillen looks like the most normal one. <laughs> he does. 
<laughs> he definitely. And then he's got, just got all these like. <laughs> well, I mean, the guy all the way on the left too. But I mean, the, the three in the middle just look like oh, a bunch of. Yeah, uh, John McCoy is just always like he is <laughs> straight out of Central Casting. <laughs> but yeah, great, That's gr- funny. great band. You know, this was after his stint with the Ian Gillen band, where it was you know not uh, again. Here is <laughs> wait till we get to Ian Gillen band. If you want some unpopular opinions from me, because I can't get enough of it. I loved oh, what boy. they were doing, and everyone apparently else in the world hated it. And oh boy, you mean the 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 uh, the fusion stuff? Oh, I love it. I love Clear Air Turbulence. It's, it's one of my all time favorite albums. And you got me into that album. Yeah, I mean, I haven't listened to it for a while, but I mean, I remember enjoying it. Oh, I loved it. And, you know, so people were tired of that and eventually just kind of went by the wayside and they went back to Gillen, which was a much more straightforward. Although there were some elements of that, too, but much more straightforward trying to redo Deep Purple almost a little bit. Um, But both both great bands. I just always leaned more towards Ian Gillen band rather than Gillen. So. There you have it. Those are the historical landmark dates coming up in the last week of August. And that brings a close to Stormbringer and the Mark III era. Close it. Bless bless it. And next, <laughs> next week we'll be talking about the background and history, the incredibly rich history of the very young Tommy Bolin when he joined Deep Purple. Some great stuff to pluck from the archives. And, you know, unlike past, you know, some of the past things we've been looking into, like finding these old records and like, I'm not even sure if they're on this and these kind of like crappy psychedelic music from 1967 or whatever. Bolin's got a huge catalog by this point and a lot of stuff to talk about into his history. You know, he he only made it to 25, sadly. But he had a huge amount behind him. He must have been maybe 23, 24 when he joined Deep Purple. Probably 24. He was, wasn't in the band for very long. Yeah. And uh, yeah, a lot to talk about next week. So until then, I'll bid you adieu and get, get your uh, Tommy Bolin fix in. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll start talking about some of his history. Heck yeah. All right. We'll talk to you next week. All right. All right. Good night. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Deep Purple Podcast. If you like what you hear and would like more episodes in the future, please donate on Patreon to support the show. You can also give us a rating on iTunes to help new people discover the show. You can follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for show updates. See deeppurplepodcast.com for more details. Thank you for listening. Um, I like it. It was just like, yeah, and I ate a bacon double cheeseburger, and then all of a sudden your voice was like, yeah. <laughs> yes, we did. Ah!